0: It's Thursday, November 16th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions from Israel. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Like every kibbutz in Israel, Kibbutz Bereri is a community, but also an idea. The idea behind every kibbutz is the principle of collectivism, but the residents of Bereri Kibbutz believed in a specific kind of collectivism. They were the largest kibbutz in what's called the Gaza envelope, the parts of Israel that abut the Gaza Strip. Israelis must live in this part of their country so that Jews live all throughout Israel, the thinking goes. And the Jews of the Bariri kibbutz were a special kind of collectively organized Israelis. They were largely very liberal Peaceniks, they believed in cooperation, not just with each other, but with the residents of Gaza, who they forged ties with. Who they invited to their homes, who they advocated for as partners in peace. Whatever claim or aspiration for peace was shattered on October seventh. An estimated hundred fifty Hamas terrorists streamed into Be'eruy and proceeded to lay siege to the residents of the kibbutz. Over eighty-five were murdered. About 30 were kidnapped. Sound you're hearing is from a video the terrorists posted online, boasting of their success. The terrorists operated undetected and unimpeded by Israeli forces for hours. They shot, fired missiles at homes, and burned out residents who had retreated to safe rooms. A little over five weeks later, And Haim Yalim walks along these shattered tiles in the yard of one family's home. Yalim was once the head of the regional council in the Gaza envelope, and then was a member of
1: Israel's parliament, the Knesset.
0: He knew everyone in this
1: community.
0: As he speaks, you can hear the shelling of Gaza in the background. The war that started here is now just a few miles away. Yalim points out a house where terrorists killed a family of three and one where terrorists killed four. On the same street, he points out a house where a barry resident got a good sniper position and was able to fire upon and kill several terrorists. Yalim next turns down another street. Here every edifice is
1: blackened. Most of the people who were killed
2: were taken uh, uh, hostage, were taken from here, from this street.
0: We step into the front yard of a charred home. The footsteps resonate on tile, now strewn all over the yard. The roof was blown off when fire was set to the home and the interior exploded from the heat and built up gases.
2: I I brought you to this home home because Rinat and Chen,
1: Rinat was
2: the mother, she worked with me Eight years she was uh, in the Welfare Department of the Regional Council.
1: And, and
2: her son was uh, a child, uh, you know, a wild child that I uh, raised up here.
1: <laughs> Yulim explains that
0: he, in his safe room, was getting messages from the family who lived in this house. Help, terrorists are attacking us. But what could he do, he asks. If he left his house, he'd be slaughtered. The family in this house had a similar choice. They fled the smoke and ran to the backyard. The family consisted of four children and two parents.
1: The
2: older brother, 16,
1: uh, 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 jumped on his uh, little brother. And the mother on the other child.
2: And the only children who survived are these children that the mother and the brother, the older brother, uh, protected.
0: Yalim is not just anguished, though he's that. He's trying, he says, to be honest with himself, just as the government needs to be honest with itself. He says for years the government looked down on the terrorists, thinking they would not and could not pull off this kind of mission. He now
1: knows better.
2: Terror is their profession, and they know how to do it.
1: But at times, his
0: honesty darkens. It turns into something he recognizes
1: as less than useful. It's feeling helpless. That is so
2: humiliating.
0: As Yalim walks through the house of his friends, his neighbors, He stops to point out the most remarkable image on a wall. Before the attacks outlined in the living room, there was a picture of a family. They were depicted facing away from the viewer, seated, adults and children sitting shoulder to shoulder, arms draped around each other. This picture was, Yalim explains, inlaid with tile or ornamental stone, which has now pressed the outline of that family into the wall. Everything else was burned away. The house is covered in soot and dust. Just the beams and the bones of the sturdiest furniture and this spectral image. It's too otherworldly to be believed, except there it is. Yalim vows to do everything he can to help his community, but he says he won't be able to talk about the events of the 7th any longer. This was his first time hosting visitors and it will be his last. He speaks of the attacks as a kind of Shoah. Not the Shoah of the six million, in his words, but the Shoah of a community, his
1: community. Burned and broken. So this is why I got the decision
2: to, to host you here, something that I don't do ever. I will not do it again, it's so hard to me, now I experience
1: it. So you have a role now to tell the story.
0: There's more than one story to tell in Israel, as I found. There's the story of political failure, of security disaster, of ongoing military conflict, and all the horrors that come with that. And as you heard when Yalim compares the flames here to the Shoah, this all fits in the existing story that made Israel a country. A country born of trauma, made to revisit that trauma more often, and as we saw in Berere, more acutely than most. The terrorist slaughter of innocents is unconscionable. You hear that description a lot. But the understanding that is brought to that heinous act is fundamental to understanding Israel's self-conception and helpful in comprehending the story that will propel the Israelis forward. On the show today. Let us go from destruction to construction, and I swear that's not a tortured segue. This interview is a fun and hopeful interview about all that humans can and have achieved. We're joined by Roma Agrawal, who is the author of Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way. Roma Agrawal, up next. When I was reading Roma Agrawal's new book, in fact, when I was reading The Table of Contents, one song kept occurring to me, Waters of March, well, this is the English language version by Art Garfunkel, you know the song.
3: A stick, a stone, it's the end of the road, it's the rest of the stump, it's a little
2: alone. It's a sliver of glass, it is life, it's the sun, it is night, it is death, it's a trap,
0: it's a gun. So here's the table of contents. A nail, a wheel, a spring, a magnet. I'm not going to torture you because it's such a lovely book. But nail, wheel, spring, magnet, lens, string, pump. What are we talking about? Is this the oddest version of Password? No, it is the subject of the new book, Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a big way. Roman Agrawal, welcome to The Gist.
3: Thank you for having me. So were you, you
0: must have been inspired or at least aware of those, as you are uh, in London there, those a few BBC series where they talk about inventions that changed the world. I can imagine you, an esteemed engineer watching these and saying, (laughs) okay, well, A, it's a big list and B, I think I could do better. Was that about (laughs) it? Were you reverse engineering the BBC?
3: Oh, I I wish it was that simple. Um, no, I, I really love those. I, I love, I have these enormous books which have thousands of incredible inventions that exist. But what I really wouldn't, was curious about was what are the building blocks that even make those inventions possible? So, you know, we can say things like the printing press or the computer or a smartphone, but there are so many tinier, more fundamental things that make up those much more pieces, much more complex pieces of engineering. And What my mission was really with this book is to try and break it down right to the fundamentals.
0: I suppose I've seen these lists and antibiotics come second. Okay, we're going to go even more fundamental than that, even earlier than that. And I think, and this is not true, the first piece of engineering that man, mankind, society invented uh, was the wheel. But you have a fascinating chapter on the wheel for a few reasons. One, the phrase, can't reinvent the wheel which you contend actually you can and we need to. But the proof of this is that we did reinvent the wheel and it took about a thousand years, right?
3: Oh, we did lots of reinventing the wheel. So that phrase really irritates me, to be honest. And um, the wheel is actually one of, I, I mean, in the span of humankind, one of the more contemporary inventions, really, we were making boats and beautiful instruments and all sorts of stuff when we invented the wheel. But Yeah, I think um, it's a fact that not that many people know that wheels were in fact not invented for transport. They were invented to create pottery in ancient Mesopotamia. And so had we not reinvented the wheel, we wouldn't have, you know, cars, aeroplanes or anything, any transport that has wheels running on their side.
0: And the Mesopotamian wheel didn't have, well, did it have the axle?
3: It did have the axle in the sense that it sat within, so, so there was like a um, a base and the base had a dip in it. And then the bottom of the potter's wheel had a, a bump in it. And that bump sat in this little dip. And so you could spin it around. And the idea of the axle being the wheel spins, but it you know remains in the same location. So I guess what's tricky about that particular reinvention is that gravity obviously helps keep the potter's wheel in place. Um, to get to wagon wheels and transport, you need to turn it on its side. And this time, you know, gravity is not going to help. It's just going to fall apart. So the challenge then became, how do you attach the wheel and the axle together in such a way that they can roll? There's not too much friction. They're not just wearing out. So it it is, I mean, it's a kind of, we know that the wheel and the axle is an incredible invention. And I've, I've tried to explore a little bit more about why, but then also say, Look at gears, look at gyroscopes, look at these other incredible reiterations of the wheel as well.
0: It's very um, uh, presentist to say for a thousand years, they're working on these pottery wheels and they never think to put it on a cart, but. Do you have any insight? At, I will say why it took so long, or let's phrase it in a more positive way. How such mental breakthroughs happen? It's hard to document that. But as someone who is an engineer and has had these mental breakthroughs and has studied history, what do you know about that?
3: I think with the with the wheel in particular, but I guess with inventions more generally, the need is an an important part of it. So you know, what do we actually need? And humans are very good at tinkering around and creating things that we actually need that will make our lives a little bit easier. So that's a part of it. The other part that I think I thought less about perhaps is what tools were available, what materials were available, um, what was the cognitive ability of, of you know, the Neanderthals, for example, who I write about, who actually invented string, or in the case of the wheels, the humans that needed the chisel to carve out wood to a good enough quality to create the wheel, which meant they needed good quality metal that could be sharp enough. So there's so many different steps that lead to some of these world changing inventions. Um, And even, even an engineer like me will often forget like, oh, yeah, you need a really sharp chisel in order to make a wheel.
0: Yes. And I'll add something else. And this was inspired by the writing of the historian and professor Brad DeLong. It took many centuries for innovations to confer upon mankind enough bounty and resources to just have mm. the calories to get through the day, Have be able to have more calories than can sustain a family. So all of this is tied in with you know, innovations start slow, and maybe they're a thousand years, but then the chisel is invented, and the wheel. The chisel begets the wheel, or maybe even going further back, the string begets the wheel, and the wheel begets the chisel, and then it all starts speeding up in a flywheel, and then suddenly we have the Industrial Revolution, and it's game on for invention. But we don't even take that into account.
3: No. And then uh, I haven't even mentioned things like geopolitics. So I talk about this in my nail chapter a little bit when we're talking about the use of um, copper and bronze and the mixing together of tin to create a slightly better metal. Um, When these materials are located geographically in different parts of the world, and then like a conflict arises somewhere and doesn't allow you to bring these two materials together, then you've lost a valuable resource. So we can talk about cognition, we can talk about what can we actually create with our hands or our brains, but then coupled with all of that is society, is politics and and everything else.
0: Yeah, and the English Empire knew this and wouldn't allow the export of nails, right, for to other places.
3: They did not. So nails were once an extraordinarily expensive and precious little commodity. Um, now, I mean, I've got hundreds of nails in my toolbox outside, and you know they're so cheap, I don't even think about bending them. I don't really care. But once upon a time, they were a precious commodity, and. When the British were ruling the world, they said, "Well, we're not sending any of our precious nails to any of our colonies. Why would we do that?" And the Americans, where you know you've got a lot of timber, wooden houses, you need nails to build homes, and so nails, you know, were so expensive that what people used to actually do, um, and this is, I think, one of my favorite facts from the book, is they would burn down their houses and then collect up all the nails that they had freed, you know, by burning the wood away. And then they would take these nails with them to their next destination and say, right, we're going to use these nails to build our next home.
0: Yeah. And Virginia had to ban the burning of houses for nails.
3: They did. A law was passed. You may not burn your um, houses down. And in fact, what they did also promise was that they would compensate the owners of the house and give them money to um cover the cost of the nails that they were leaving behind.
0: Would that be considered creative destruction? <laughs> the string is interesting. A lot of these have an analog in nature, and I didn't realize, well, with some it's more apparent than others. I mean the wheel, right? There's a round tree stump and you roll it and you say maybe someone says, "Hmm, but how might a Neanderthal have been inspired by something natural to come up with string?"
3: I guess people were using natural fibers like ivy, you know, twine, stuff that they could see in nature that was long enough but also flexible enough that they could wrap stuff up with. And so if we might imagine uh, an ancient spear where you took a piece of stone or metal and then you used a form of twine or rope or whatever to tie that to a long pole. So, so there's some kind of precedent for using a natural material. But what's incredible about what the Neanderthals did was that they extracted fibres from the bark of coniferous trees? So they extract the fibres. They realise that a little, you know these little fibres by themselves are not very useful. They're quite fragile. They break. And then they said, "Well, hmm, let me let me try and combine this in some sort of way." So they kind of roll up a whole series of fibres, create you know a single thread. And then they say, well what happens if we take three of these and then twist them in the opposite direction to you know the fiber twists and then they did that and so they've actually done something that's quite um, like cognitive there's a you know there's mathematical complexity to it they're harnessing friction to make sure that all of these fibers that on their own are quite weak, not very strong that when you bring them together they can actually create this Incredible product. And, you know, I took up knitting and crochet. I, you know, I told myself it was research for the book. I have to say it turned out to be a massive distraction and procrastination uh-huh. <laughs> tool for, from writing. But the, you know, the yarns that I use today are based on exactly that same principle. And that slightly boggles my mind.
0: That's fascinating. Tell me a little bit. You helped build the shard, right? The, the tallest uh, skyscraper in Western Europe.
3: That's right, yes. I spent six years of my career as a structural engineer on that project.
0: When you're in the middle of a design project like that, you, I would imagine, have to have focus and you have to have convergent thinking. Everything you're doing is... uh, directed towards the project. But a book like this is a little more unlocking your mind and thinking divergently. So you've demonstrated that you have both of those abilities in abundance. But how do you corral or control them? I, I, I wouldn't expect you let your mind wander to come up with a book <laughs> like this. But how do you manage or wrangle the different forms of mental focus given the task at hand?
3: Oh, that is such a fascinating question. And um, I'm very flattered that you think I have mastered both of these techniques because it doesn't feel that way to me.
0: Well, the shard's still
3: standing <laughs> it, it <is. laughs> and the book's it is. in stores now. So that's <laughs> some level of mastery. Um, the thing that I find the most contrasting between these two practices is how solitary writing is and how much of a team sport, you know, something like engineering, a big skyscraper is. And I arguably do better when I'm with other people and I'm discussing ideas and so on, because I think having that, you know, we we kind of know that this is what we're trying to achieve. It's clear. There's a drawing. It tells us what it looks like. We understand what all the risks are, what all the constraints are, and we pick away at them. We use some creativity and design stuff. But you're, you know, you're using a multitude of brains to produce that. And I love that. The writing I find more challenging, um, because that's the mode I'm used to. I worked as a structural engineer for 14 years before I've you know, i taken up writing as a full-time career now. Um, Nuts and Bolts is my third book. And yeah, it's, I still find it challenging, but I really love that I have a blank page. I can decide what I write. Like the, I guess the um, autonomy, the power that you have over a book is unlike what you can ever have on an engineering project where there's thousands of people involved. And so I find that um, very freeing. I guess so. So yeah, there, I think there's a lot of mind wandering that happens with writing.
0: Right. So as you're on a project where you have to have a lot of focus, do you find yourself not having these stray thoughts, or do you write them down for later? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you didn't have the metacognition to take account <laughs> of what was going on.
3: I I think I'm pretty good at thinking about. I mean, this is a good thing and a bad thing. I think about so many different things all at the same time. So. When I wrote my first book called Built I was writing that while working as a structural engineer and I remember that I would be taking you know the the tube the London tube which is the underground metro system and I would spend kind of the 30 minutes I was on that like thinking about my book ideas and trying to jot notes while hanging off a pole in a crowded carriage um and then I'd get to work and then I'd switch my brain to that different mode um and and so I think I think I think the point that's really important here is that engineering is actually a really creative profession. I don't think many of us think of it that way. And so, although writing is a far cry from you know technical engineering, I think there's a um, central core of creativity that ties the two together.
0: Yeah, I think probably people don't think of it as creative because it does have to be precise. Mm. And we mistake creativity for something akin to chaos or wildness. But, you know, just as someone who's a quasi creative person, I always felt creativity thrived the most <laughs> within uh, boundaries and rules and maybe within accountability, mm. you know, hey, that doesn't work. Yeah, no, it <laughs> gets pretty clear
3: okay. when something in engineering doesn't work. And, and for me, the creativity comes from when somebody says to us, right, you need to build the central spine of the tower. We want to build up and down at the same time to save time and money. Make it happen. And then we go, right, OK, this hasn't really been done before. How are we going to make this happen? What can we do? You know, what is the sequence of this? And, and that's such an exciting process.
0: And we'll be back with Roma Agrawal, author of Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way, in about a big minute. And we're back with Roma Agrawal. Let us join, rejoin our discussion. With the author of Nuts and Bolts. There also must be, and this is echoed in the character, the real life person in your book, Josephine uh, Cochran, when you're obsessed with a task, you do have insights about that task. Adam Smith wrote about this in Wealth of Nations, that one of the benefits of focusing on something is you'd come up with innovation. So tell me about how Josephine Cochran exemplifies that.
3: Yeah, she's one of um, my favorite characters in the book so she is uh, she exists in 19th century america she was born to a family of engineers her her father her grandfather they were engineers and i often think about the fact that has she been born joseph rather than josephine i e she was a man then she would have probably studied engineering but as it was at that time women couldn't get degrees certainly not in engineering now she kind of followed the traditional route that women did in that era, which is to get married and then be a good housewife. Um, And then she got a little bit irritated and she got irritated at the fact that she would host these dinner parties and that her lovely kind of vintage China set that she owned would get chipped when it was being washed after the dinner parties. And she said, I'm sure that I can do a better job with creating a machine to wash these than all the men that have come before me because I actually wash dishes with my hands. So I might have some idea about what's actually entailed in this project. Um, what then happened? So, so this is where you, know, you, you might have the idea, the irritation, but to actually turn that into engineering and into a successful project, a pr- a product requires so much more. And in her case, that need, that necessity that we talked about earlier came because her husband died and left her in debt. And so now suddenly she needs to create her own money to sustain herself and her children. And she says, right, I'm going to turn this um, dishwasher idea that I have into a real thing and sell it and support my family. And then she talks about the different barriers she faced, the fact that a woman running a business you know, couldn't get funding, the fact that she would have to go and sell her product to other men and, and this was kind of unheard of of a woman of her class at the time, But eventually, she succeeds, she gets a patent, um, which is a whole other discussion, Um, and her company got acquired by KitchenAid, which is now part of the Whirlpool Group. And so I love the idea that this kind of plucky woman from the 19th century has this legacy that endures till today.
0: Yeah. Although, since she was uh, America, she probably got a patent. patent.
3: Okay, all right. I'll give you that one, Mike. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> this is not me mansplaining. This is me America splaining. I know you invented the language, but okay. So this exemplifies the true condition of engineering today, which is it is so male dominated. Uh, do you do you have any of the statistics? Uh, well, your your whole life is uh, goes to this point, but. Do you know currently how dom- male dominated the field is?
3: So, in the UK, the workforce is between 12 and 15% women. Yeah. And then when you get to the people in color statistics, that's also pretty dismal. So I think it's about four to five percent of engineers in the UK are people of color, um, whereas the general population, is it's about 13 percent. So there's a big imbalance. And I don't yes. think the numbers are that different in the US.
0: Well, they are. And this is what I was wondering about. Yes, with women, they're not. But with people of color... Asians are very overrepresented, not in a bad way. I'm just saying that there are four to five percent of the U.S. population. And I just looked at the statistics, mm. numbers in engineering, and there are upwards of 20 percent of engineer graduates. And in the biggest engineering schools, if you look at a school like Texas A&M, the College of Engineering is, I think, 14 percent Asian, which for the state of Texas is actually low. But then when you factor in international students and mm. they don't count the uh, ethnicity of international students, they just count the country of origin but the biggest countries of origin are Asian countries, India and uh, China. Anyway, it gets to the fact that Asians are doing very well or are very well represented in uh, engineering in the US. And so that was going to be my question. Is it much different in the UK? And you're saying it is, it's rare to see, say, an Asian person, a South Asian person to say nothing of a woman on a job site. Is that that is the case in the UK?
3: That is the case. And then again, but, you know, within the kind of broad realm of people of color, black engineers are um, very, you know, poorly represented. You That get is more, the case.
0: That is absolutely the case. Yeah. The so US you, you well, get yes.
3: more South Asians and East Asians. Sure. Um, but yeah, the idea of of um, a South Asian Indian woman being on a construction site, I'm I'm, I'm very happy to report is getting more and more common. <laughs> but certainly right. when I started uh, my career in 2005, uh, it was not very common. It, I mean, it was not very common to get women on site. And, you know, it is a long time ago now. Things have changed, but I'm not that old. <laughs> and when I first started my career, I would go on site and there were still naked pictures of women on the walls and there were no women's toilets and there was no... Steel toe capped boots and high vis jackets that actually fit me. So there was like a safety aspect to all of it as well. And
0: yeah. And I'm not an engineer, but naked women on the wall, does that somehow help the tensile strength of the building?
3: I mean, this is my question to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm inside a building
0: and it's a little shaky. I'm like, I bet there were no naked women on the wall. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's, that's what's that. That's, that was <laughs> that the, the glue.
0: <laughs> so. On this question, first of all, I'll say that this is the usefulness of the concept of intersectionality, right? Uh, At least in America, there are many uh, Asian, which includes South Asian engineers, but very, very few South Asian female engineers. So we can't just look at a South Asian woman and say, oh, you have fine representation in the Mm -hmm. field of engineering. No, you specifically, uh, including your gender, you don't. However, there is a cultural problem here. And if you especially look at the American statistics or, you know, growing up how you grew up and the messages that are given to, you know, even in countries that produce many engineers like Singapore, it wouldn't, these wouldn't be messages given to women. So there is a cultural problem. Do you think the culture that needs the most correcting is the culture of engineering or the culture of some of these countries that uh, have underrepresented female populations in the world of engineering?
3: And this is an excellent question. And unfortunately, the answer is both. Okay. And I'll, I'll explain why. So, if I start with why the culture of engineering needs an update, it's because we need to do better to attract women and other marginalized people into the workplace. And we're doing a lot better at that. But what we're not then doing is retaining them well. So, again, I know the statistics better for the UK, but a, a very large proportion of women drop out of their careers in their mid to late 30s. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm one of those statistics. I went on Mm. to write engineering books. So I, you know, I kind of say that I'm still around. Um, But that's a problem. We also find that if a woman studies or, or indeed a person of color studies engineering at university, they're still much more likely than their white male counterparts to actually go on and become an engineer professionally. So there's all these things that, you know, we, the jargon is the leaky pipeline, all these different points at which we're losing people from marginalized backgrounds into the profession. And I feel like as the, you know, the profession is getting better, broadly speaking, but there's a huge amount of work to be done. And as the culture improves, I think more and more marginalized people can make it. Now, you talk about the culture more generally, and I, and I would say that this is true for every country, really, around the world, because we don't have gender parity in, in any, any country. But let me just give you a little example. Um, I wanted to buy little digger outfits for my daughter. Where did I have to go in the shop? To the boys' section. The girls' section has rainbows and princesses and unicorns, all wonderful things, but we are dividing professions animals books toys um or, you know everything by gender from the time the child is in your body you know you, we we you know burst pink um firecrackers or what you know all these kinds of things to say oh we're having a girl so that culture needs to change and um That's going to take a lot more unpicking. It's going to take a lot more for all of us to kind of be conscious of the language we're using around children of different genders, thinking about what toys we're getting them, what books we're getting them, who their role model. I mean, there's so much.
0: Roma Agrawal is an award-winning structural engineer. She's designed bridges, skyscrapers, sculptures. She's lectured widely, presented shows for the BBC and Discovery. She hosts a fascinating podcast and is now out with a new book. And if I know her pattern of doing books, soon a children's version of this book, will be out. The version for you adults is called Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions that Change the World in a Big Way. Roma, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much for your very thoughtful questions.
0: That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oompru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.